Good morning, MPC. My name is Chase Foster, and I have been a member here for about three years. Um, and I, too, like some of our pastors, have also eaten a donut while running a long run. Um, today's uh, scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Um, that's page 573 in the Pew Bible. Uh, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, good morning and a warm welcome again to McLean Presbyterian. My name is James Forsyth. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's great to welcome you here in our sanctuary, down in our fellowship hall, or even worshiping with us online. I trust you had a good Thanksgiving. Rosie and I, my wife and I, had a great week. We were back in Scotland um, where it isn't Thanksgiving, right? It's just November, right? Um, uh, we had a good time, though, catching up with some family, uh, laughing uh, with friends. And then a really encouraging weekend. Last weekend, I was speaking at a church planting conference in Edinburgh, uh, capital city of Scotland. And I was just, it was really encouraging to be a part of that. I have, I have never seen um, an optimism uh, for the gospel and such an outward face um, amongst the churches there. And there seems to really be a new work of gospel renewal taking place in that, that country that was certain, certainly that I've never seen before in, in my lifetime. So it was a, an encouraging, encouraging time. Good to be back home, though, and glad to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. We're going to spend some time in Isaiah chapter 9. I encourage you to turn there in your Bible or your phone or other device. Uh, if you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 573. As we get our arms around this passage, uh, Christmas time, we often read this passage. Maybe it's a passage that's familiar to you, but I know when I started to dive into it, there were lots of things that didn't quite make sense or I wasn't really sure what it was all, all referring to. So we're going to walk through it together this morning and learn from God's Word. But uh, because we want to learn from Him, uh, let's uh, begin by going to Him in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, You have revealed Yourself as the God who answers us, the God who protects us, helps us, supports us, remembers us, and, and gives us the, the favor of grace. 
And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would come and do that again in our midst. That you would be all of this and more to us. Uh, even in these very moments right now, that as we come to your word, it would make sense to us because you are speaking to us by the power of your spirit and that we would learn more about your love and its implications for our lives. Uh, do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Who remembers being afraid of the dark? Hands up. Yeah. Um, who's a little afraid of the dark still? Okay, we get most hand. Okay, yeah. Um, I remember when my kids were wee and we moved to the area. We lived in a condo in Reston, and it was one of those situations whereby when your when your trash was full, you had to take it out of the trash can and then go downstairs to kind of a shared room, all the apartments shared at the bottom of the building, uh, where you would open the door and walk to the other side of the room, and there, that's where all the big the big trash cans were. The problem was the light in the trash room didn't work. And the room, it was just far enough that there was no way to go in, make your way to the other side, put in your trash, and get back before the door slammed shut. So I remember going down into that room carrying, you know, trash in one hand and holding, holding a wee hand in, in the other hand. And um, we'd open the door, and when, it time, when, when I said, okay, it's time to go, they would run to the other side and we'd run over and we'd put our trash in and then the door would slam shut and it would be pitch black. And even in holding the hand, you could feel fear. Right? Why? Because the dark's scary. The dark's scary. And of course, we know, right, it's not just, it's not just in the trash room, right? Um, there's darkness in our world that is, is, is fearful. There's darkness in our, our own lives as well. So what do we do? when we're afraid of the dark. Let's look at this passage together. It's written by Isaiah, and Isaiah is kind of like the heavyweight champion of Old Testament prophets, and it's his job to take God's word to God's people. That's, what, that's what's on the job description of a, of a prophet. What do they do? They take God's word to his people, and specifically, they reveal to the people God's will for their salvation. And Isaiah is, is a great prophet, but his congregation is an absolute disaster. You'll note whenever we talk about the context of nearly any passage in the Bible, we find God's people are an absolute disaster, and uh, it's no different here in this text, and maybe no different for us here this morning. Israel, at this time, it's about 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, and during this time, they have wandered far from him. In Israel, at this time, all moral absolutes have disappeared. Personal character, personal integrity has evaporated. Uh, public morality has also collapsed, but worst of all, in the midst of this scene, the people consider themselves very religious. Why? Because they're still going through the motions. They're still observing the rituals and the routines and the sacrifices and all the kind of outward things that God had asked them to do, thinking that their outward behavior would somehow please God. Well, God shows up and condemns their religiosity as nothing but hypocrisy and responds to their sin the way he always responds to sin. First of all, in keeping with his perfect justice, he tells them that, that judgment is coming. Now understand that for God, judgment isn't some knee-jerk, hot-headed act of vengeance. No, God judges sin as part of his settled, determined opposition to all that is evil and all that is wicked in our world. 
And there's part of that that, 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 that should, be, should be an encouragement to us. When we look out at the evil of the world or even the evil we see in our, coming into our, our own lives, we know that God sees it, he pays attention to it, and will reckon with it all. There has never been an evil act in history, from the smallest thing to the, to the most atrocious evil on the world stage, that God is just going to ignore, turn a blind eye to. No, he will bring justice to every wrong. Now, while that's encouraging on one hand, it's also challenging on the other. Why? Because that includes the evil that we've committed as well. That includes the evil of our, of our own hearts, too. God is not blind to that either. So in keeping with justice, God responds to sin by, by promising judgment. But also, in keeping with his perfect grace, he also offers the hope of salvation. Salvation from that judgment for any and all who would come and look to him. And so when we arrive on the scene here in Isaiah chapter 9, we actually find ourselves in the middle of judgment. The Assyrians have come and they have oppressed Israel. God's people are living in the shadow of this cruel and uh, harsh um, power. Uh, The Assyrians at this time were a a brutal people. Think Lord of the Rings, those kind of hordes. That's, That's the Assyrians for you. Now, into this gloomy context, into this forlorn context, God now comes and speaks a word of hope. Into the darkness... God speaks a word of hope. The passage that we read, uh, verses 1 through 7, breaks quite neatly into into two sections. First of all, we get the hope uh, described by Isaiah in verses 1 through 3, and then this hope is explained in verses 4 through 7. So the hope described, 1 through 3, the hope explained, 4 through 7. Let's look at those quickly together. First of all, we get the hope described in verses 1 through 3. Now, we can summarize the hope. I don't know what was going through your mind as we read about Zebulun and Jordan and darkness and nations being multiplied and and all the rest. It can be hard to get our arms arms around, but here's the simple description of the hope. The hope is that God is going to act into this context of judgment, into this context of darkness and gloom. God is going to act to bring about a new situation for God's people and to bring them into a new relationship with him. It's going to act to bring about a new situation and a new relationship. Let's see how that's in the text. Verse 1, we get this picture that God is going to act. See it there? Read it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Israel, who was in anguish. There'll be no gloom for her. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's verses saying, yes, things right now are bad in Israel, but God is going to come and he's going to do something about it. And so sure is Isaiah of this hope, so certain is Isaiah of this God that he speaks of events that haven't happened yet as if they have already happened. Do you see that in the text? He describes what will happen, verse 1, in the latter time. He says, in the latter time, he has made glorious. Now, this, this hasn't happened yet, but he is so sure that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. For God, the future can be written of as if it's already history. God will act. Well, what's he going to do? He's going to first bring about a new situation for his people. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, the Israelites, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has dawned. 
He's saying, yeah, you are in darkness and it seems impenetrable. You're living in a time and a season where it is always winter, never Christmas. But the creator God, the God who spoke light into darkness is going to intervene. The light is going to come. You will see this great light. It will dawn on you. It will shine upon you. God will act to bring your situation of darkness into a situation of light. And because he does that, verse 3, because he's brought about a new situation for you, he'll also bring you into a new relationship with him. You see it there? God has multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, and so they, the people of Israel, rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. As God does this new thing, as he brings about this new situation, as he restores the people's fortunes and replaces their gloom for joy, they're going to respond, how? By rejoicing. They're going to respond by worshiping him. A right relationship of worship is going to be restored as God is good to his people, kind to his people, gracious to his people, and they repay him with worship. They respond by worshiping in turn. So that's the hope. That's what verses one through three is all about. Things are terrible in Israel, but God's gonna, gonna, God, God is going to act. He's going to bring you into a new situation. He's going to bring you into a new relationship with him. Well, how? How is all of this going to take place? It takes us to the hope explained in verses four through seven. Uh, if you have a pen there, uh, circle the first word of verses four five, and six. Notice how each of these verses begins with the same word. Each of these verses begins with the word for. For. You can be sure that this hope I've just going to describe, I've just described, is going to come about for these three reasons. I'm going to do three things to bring about this hope in your lives. First of all, he tells us in verse four that I will defeat your enemies. Read verse 4 with me. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. So the yoke and the staff and the rod, they are symbols in Isaiah's day of oppression. They are symbols of of servitude. And God is saying, these symbols, I'm going to smash them. I'm going to break them up. Right now, you're burdened by these things because you're under uh, the power of the Assyrians, but I am going to come and I am going to destroy these symbols. Remember how I delivered you from the Midianites before? Well, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do something similar again. I am going to defeat your enemies. Not only that, verse 5, after defeating your enemies, I'm going to establish peace. That's what verse 5 tells us. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled with blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So he's saying the brutality of war, the horrors of war are going, going to fade from view. All the kind of um, military equipment is no longer going to be needed. So remember those garments that you rolled in blood, that you were involved in such intense hand-to-hand combat, that you rolled around in the blood of your enemies and even your own blood? Well, you're not going to need these garments anymore. They can be used simply as fuel for the fire because I am going to establish peace. Okay, so God's going to act 
A new situation is coming, new relationship with him as he defeats enemies, as he establishes peace. And, and how is all that going to happen? Verse 6, as God sends his Savior. Are you familiar with these words? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God reveals to us the agent through which this hope will come. So God doesn't show up and say, okay, um, we're going to make this great situation, and, and here's what you have to do in order to bring it about. You're going to be in a new relationship with me, and here's what you have to do in order to bring it about. No, he says, no. Uh, the agent through which this hope is going to come is going to be the Savior. The Savior who is, on one hand, a human being. To us, a child is born. And yet, at the same time, also God. What are you going to call this human child? You're going to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the government is going to be on his shoulder. The responsibility for establishing this new kingdom, this new people of God, and the responsibility for the, the rule and reign of this kingdom doesn't fall upon the people, but will fall upon the Savior himself. So, step back with me. Verses 1 through 9, all sorts of interesting place names, all sorts of interesting language, all sorts of quite obscure references, but a very simple teaching into this context of darkness where God's people are struggling, God shows up and he says, I'm going to act and bring about a new situation for you and bring you into a new relationship with me. And I'm going to do this by defeating your enemies and establishing peace through a savior who will be the God-man himself. That's the teaching of these verses. Three quick applications for us as we move into our Advent celebrations. First of all, um, we want to take the context seriously. The fact that the people were in darkness. And we want to recognize as a church still today that there's a sense in which first, Advent is about darkness. It is about darkness. Now, we may not personally be facing the Assyrians, but we still see a lot of darkness in our world. And, and I, I hope that we do. I hope that we do. I hope that we are not a people who are so navel-gazing in, into our own lives and into our own comfort that we don't lift our eyes to the horizons and see some of the brutal horrors that still take place in our world. The famine and the suicide and the rape and the pornography and the war and the death and all that is wrong in our world. It outrages our God and it ought to outrage us also. But of course, we know that the darkness just isn't out there in the world. We also experience darkness ourselves. In our own lives, we have sorrows, we have struggles. We add to those our own sin and our own brokenness. We have our own fear, shame, and regret. Perhaps this morning, it feels like you're walking in darkness, dwelling in a land of deep darkness. And to that, we want to say, if the holidays are hard for you, this is the church for you. If the holidays are hard for you, this is the church for you. Why? Because we're not going to celebrate Advent with some silly, happy, idealistic grin. We're going to celebrate 
But as we do, we're going to walk with family members, the people like that are sitting right beside you in these pews who are grieving over children they've lost or children they've been unable to conceive. We're going to walk through the season of, of celebration, but we're going to do that hand in hand with those who uh, can't get out of bed because they're struggling with their mental health or have to stay in bed because the cancer is spreading. Uh, we're going to celebrate this season, but we're going to do it hand in hand with those who are weeping and grieving over their own sin and their own brokenness and how they've made shipwreck of their faith and brought untold ruin to their own lives and the lives of, of others. Um, if you are struggling this Christmas, if you feel like you're in the land of darkness, you, just, you don't have to pretend all month. Right? It's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> well, maybe not. And that's okay. You can be honest about that. Talk to your community group about it. If you are doing well this season, then that's great. And have an eye out for those who aren't. As, as a church, um, we love each other. We carry one another's burdens. We, we put one another above ourselves. We, we're looking for ways to be building each other up, to be loving and loving each other well, because we know that all of us are needy and all of us are needed and we're in this mess together. And Advent does justice to this does justice to the darkness of light, the, the darkness of life. Um, in fact, we wouldn't celebrate the light if it weren't for the darkness. Right? Um, the reason we're celebrating is because of how hard things can be. And so, um, yeah, find space for that in this place. And know, in the midst of the fear, the shame, and regret, that, you know, like with God's people in the Old Testament, um, God's not done with us yet. Right? So, yes, one, Advent's about darkness, but second application, Advent's also about light. <laughs> Advent is also about light. Those who walked in darkness have seen light, those who dwelt in deep, deep darkness, and then light has shone. Now, in the Bible, uh, light and life always go together. So, death and darkness go together, and also light and life go together. Um, this week I heard one preacher referencing an article in Popular Science called, If the Sun Went Out, How Long Would Life on Earth Survive? If the Sun Went Out, How Long Would Life on Earth Survive? I looked it up. Here's a quote. You ready? If you put a steamy cup of coffee in the refrigerator, it wouldn't immediately turn cold. Okay. Tracking with me? Likewise, if the sun simply turned off, which is actually physically impossible, the earth would stay warm for a few million years, but we surface dwellers would feel the chill much sooner than that. Within a week, within one week, the average global surface temperature would drop below zero degrees Fahrenheit. In a year, it would dip to mi minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Our planet would reach a stable minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit, according to a professor of planetary science at the California Institute of Technology. I guess you have to research something, you know. Um, <laughs> although, <laughs> this is really suspicious, right? Scientist name, the professor at Caltech, his name is David Stevenson. <laughs> so, suspect research at best, we think. Um, before concluding, the majority of life would enjoy only a brief post-sun existence. We get it. Light and life go together, literally, and in the scriptures, metaphorically as well. 
Well, if light and life go together, we celebrate Advent because the light has come. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now listen, Isaiah described what would happen with such confidence, with such certainty that he described it as if it already had happened. But for us meeting here today, it literally has. Israel's future is the church's history. Look with me, um, Matthew chapter 4. Turn there with me. I love this. Page uh, 809, if you have a pew Bible. Seven hundred years after Isaiah spoke these oh-so-poetic words, they were fulfilled in the most literal of form. Verse 12, the end of verse 12, you see we read that Jesus withdraws into Galilee. And then look at verse 13. See if this, does this start to ring a bell? And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Spoken where? In Isaiah chapter 9. We keep reading in Matthew. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light on those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them light has dawned. God promised that he would send a savior. Now in Matthew we read that he did. That he did. It's so certain that we don't just speak of it as a, as a future guarantee, but as a past fact of history. That Jesus is this human being, this uh, God himself, this God-man arriving in the flesh. John will say in his gospel that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that his light has done what? Shone into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, friends, we know um, one, one day the sun will burn out. Just think about that for a second. It's kind of apocalyptic thought. Does it make you feel a little bit afraid? And then you realize, well, it, it doesn't need to because we'll all be dead long before it. Right? Like, but poor, let that sit in you for a second. Okay, the sun burning out, when that's going to happen, fairly speculative. The fact that every single one of us in this room is going to die isn't speculative at all. That's a certainty. <laughs> That's a guarantee. And yet, even in death, for the Christian, the light of Christ will shine. One of my favorite moments in the Christmas season is on our Christmas Eve service when we get to the last of our Christmas readings and we read that beautiful passage from Revelation where we read that for the Christian... Death no longer brings darkness, but only ushers us into that city that, quote, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God gives it light, and his lamp is the lamb. That Jesus is that ultimate light, and in his light, nothing will ever die, nothing will ever decay. And the message of Christmas is that this light has come, that the light has come. God has brought about a new situation for us, his people, and he has brought us into a new relationship with him. Darkness does not define us. The light has overcome. Yes, Advent is about darkness, but more so, it's about light. Third, 
finally, then I'm done. Um, if you've got to understand how you, how you move from one to the other, <laughs> from darkness into light, you've got to also understand, thirdly, that the Advent, it's about darkness, it's about light, but it's also about grace. Advent's also about grace. Now, that theme is in our passage again and again and again. The emphasis upon, is upon what God is going to do for his people, not what his people must come and do for him. God is the one who acts. God is the one who sends. God is the one who gives this child to us. It is not a list of requirements of what we must do in order to be in a new situation and be in a new relationship. No, it is about what the Savior will do for us in order that these things might take place. And so Jesus comes and he satisfies God's perfect justice because he takes judgment upon himself. How does he do that? Remember, the darkness of the cross. As Christ hangs on the cross, taking the punishment our sins, sins deserve, darkness covered the entire earth as he bore the weight of God's judgment upon sin. And yet, because he did this, not only is God's perfect justice satisfied, but so is God's perfect grace. God is offering salvation to any and all who will look to him today, just as he offered it to his people in Isaiah's day. And he offers it freely as, as a gift. Now, <clears throat> this is great until you remember, you know, some, some gifts are really hard to receive. So Christmas morning, Imagine with me. You know, you've gone through your routine, you've gone through your traditions, your time for opening presents has come, you know, kids have all opened theirs and it comes to you and you open some gifts and then uh, you pick up one from a friend and uh, it looks like a book, so that's fine, and you rip the wrapping paper off and uh, it's a book on dieting. <laughs> hmm. uh, then you open uh, another, another book and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a book on personal grooming. You can't receive these gifts gratefully without admitting something you'd rather not admit, okay? Oh, I'm out of shape and smell bad, right? <laughs> Only when I realize those things do these gifts become gifts. Well, friends, there has never been a gift in history that forces men and women to swallow their pride like the gift of the gospel. Because the gospel comes and says, hey, you're not just in need of a diet, you're not just in, in need of, you know, a new hygiene regime. You're in need of a savior to forgive all of your sin. That left to ourselves, we are in darkness and we're heading towards the perfect justice and judgment of God. That God won't ignore our sins either. And yet the gospel is held to us offered to us freely as a gift. We don't need to do anything to get it, but we do need to receive it. How do you do that? You swallow your pride. You swallow your pride. It's the only way to move from darkness into light. You swallow your pride and say, Lord, yeah, that gift, I need that gift. Sign me up. I, I need a savior more than any other to forgive me, fool, and free. If you do that, he'll move you from darkness into light. It'll be his gift of grace. Okay, I'm done. Nearly. Back to the trash room, okay? Standing at the trash can, got a terrified hand, holding a child's terrified hand, right? <laughs> um, and I'm thinking, okay, what do you, dad, what do you say, what do you say right? 
kids are afraid, you say, don't be afraid. And then you need a reason, you know? And as I'm standing there, I turn and I look. And I say, hey, 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 look at the door. Do you see the shaft of light under the door? Don't look at the darkness. Look at the light. Don't look at the darkness. Look at the light. The light shows us where we're going. And as a family, that's what we want to do in this Advent season. We know there's darkness in our world, and we know there's darkness in our lives. And together, we want to look at the light. We want to come to all these services and bring all your friends that we might celebrate Jesus. We want to work our way through the family devotional that we put out. We want to find other ways to, to, to focus our hearts and our minds on Christ. That together, we won't be afraid of the darkness. Because Jesus, and Jesus alone, is enough to light the way. So, let's get this party started. Let's celebrate Advent right. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we are glad for this season um, of Advent that we are able to uh, step back from the busyness and the hurry of, of life and feel you hold us by the hand, that you would take um, the grip of us in the midst of the darkness of life, in the midst of our fears and, and worries, and you would show us that the light has come. And so, Lord, I pray that throughout this month that shaft under the door would open wide and your light would shine and we would see Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.